0: one two one two three four hi and welcome to Religious not spiritual the podcast where Matt Cook a disillusioned preacher reads through the entire Bible and talks about whatever comes up in this episode we continue through Luke John appears in the wilderness like an Essene, I get an opportunity to criticize hell again and I ask why don't believers take verses like Luke 3 10 to 14 seriously He's Hey, good morning, we're in Luke. Were you looking for Bible reading? Well, you're in Luke. We ended halfway through Luke 2 yesterday, talking with our good buddy Simeon. Let's pick it up in verse 36. So we were just in the temple where Jesus was brought as a itty-bitty baby for purification, costing a pair of turtle doves. And old man Simeon recognized, hey, This is the great underminer. I'm glad I got to see him before I died. Let's start at verse 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping and fasting and prayer night and day. So this is a mystic professional. That's the outline of this character that we're being given right now. The reason I say that is because of how she's described, right? At first, it gives a quick little lineage for her, and then it talks about the things that she has given up in life. She's been a widow for 84 years. She spends all day and all night uh, worshiping, fasting, praying. Therefore, she probably sees something more than the person with average spiritual perception. Uh, so so verse 38 and coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to who all were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And that's it. That's all we see of Anna. Huh. She doesn't even say anything. You you, you could almost, um, it almost looks like she doesn't have any interaction whatsoever uh, with the Christ child and his family. That's interesting. I don't know what to make of that. And when they, that is the parents, and when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. You notice the text said something very, very similar about John who came before in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 80. And the child grew and became strong in spirit. So we have now we have these two these two characters who have come from these two women who have both been flagged to us as very, very important. Elizabeth, the one with the voice uh, who speaks and names her son, whose husband can only speak when he reinforces that. And we have Mary, to whom all the big secret message uh, messages are given, uh, which she ponders in her heart. So so, so now the offspring of both of these are let loose upon the world. Verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. And then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Now, one thing that's interesting to me is they're setting up how scary this is right now. Um, you notice in all myth, a lot of detail just gets glossed right over. A lot of stuff just does not get explained. So when when the text lingers, um, you kind of got to ask why. So So it specifies... He stays. The parents didn't know it. They thought he was with one of the relatives. They went out for a whole day. They searched Jerusalem. It goes on for like four verses. The precious thing, the precious promise is lost. Verse 46. After three days they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. This is another cool part of the Bible that sometimes gets misrepresented um, in paintings and in sermons. A lot of preachers try to paint this moment as when Jesus is teaching in the temple, and you might see a picture of a little boy Jesus surrounded by a bunch of old people who looks so amazed at this teaching, and he's just standing there with his hand in the air going, oh, here's some new teaching that I got. Um, but that's not that doesn't seem to be at all what the text is implying. Uh, in fact, up until now, at least, and, and for the rest of Luke, we'll see, Jesus gains as he goes on. He doesn't come into the world eternal, powerful, kapoom, right? Remember the, the verse we just read ab- above us, that that he grew and became strong and filled with wisdom. Here, he's not teaching in the temple. He's asking questions. He has gotten so distracted by this uh, 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 religious edifice that he's he's like, "I, I gotta know this thing. I gotta understand this thing. And the people that he's talking to, the religious professionals, are amazed at how he can understand the things that they're teaching. They're not amazed because, wow, he's giving us new stuff. Not yet. They're amazed because, wow, he understands everything that we're talking about. This guy has got some insight. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. Yeah, and his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's house? Whoa, that's a weird answer. It's also the first time Jesus talks in Luke's account. The first time he talks, he says something really, really strange. That suggests either he doesn't know what's going on at all, or he's seeing something completely different from what everyone else is seeing. Why were you looking for me? Are you kidding, 12-year-old? 12-year-old left in Jerusalem three days ago? Didn't you know I must be in my father's house? Interesting. So he already has this gravity towards his religious tradition. And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. Makes sense. Neither do I. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And again, his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. This has been mentioned so much. I mean, you know, it would be a wild theory. I would love it if it was like, it's not possible. Um, But you know, if someone like Mary wrote uh, this book, because it keeps mentioning her and she keeps mentioning how she's remembering everything. Uh, Of course, that doesn't work. But maybe mythologically it does, right? And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This is another time where I'm glad that my relationship with the Bible and with Christianity is not based on belief. Because verses like this threw me for a loop as an evangelical. How could Jesus increase in wisdom and favor with God? How could that be? He's the God-man. He's perfect from before the womb right the pre-existent Christ and I mean as a as a believer I, I did have some pretty interesting ways of making this verse fit with that Christology um but it was always a little bit clunky it was always a little bit I, I partially have to explain a little bit of this away to make it fit right but now since my relate my religious relationship is not based on belief but based on practice or something or a, a really elevated fandom it doesn't matter i can say oh look luke's jesus is a student now growing rapidly what is he going to bring us when he becomes a teacher chapter 3 in the 15th year of the reign of tiberius caesar pontius Pilate being governor of judea and herod being tetrarch of galilee and his brother Philip, Tetrarch of the region of Itoria and Tracontus, and Lysinus, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came. Wicked cool setup. Kind of political feeling set up. Luke wants us to know he knows when this is happening. He's got the time frames down. From what from my understanding, too, um, his knowledge of Timing and political things is is pretty spot on. But as we go through, we are going to discover that his understanding of the geography of Judea doesn't make sense. So uh, uh, scholars believe that the writer of Luke had never actually been there. But let's get into that when we get into that. We don't need to get distracted. I'm just really, really amazed at how intricately he's setting this up. He's making this precise. So when this guy's reigning at this place and that place and he's the priest and blah, 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 blah. Verse 2, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Because remember, after John was born, he went out into the wilderness, which I take to mean that he probably joined the Essenes, right? Am I saying that right? Because um, during this time, there was like three main um, Jewish groups, religious groups, the Pharisees, Sadducees, which we hear in the Bible, and the guys we never really hear about, the Essenes. And they were more of a... Mystic, live out in the wilderness with simplicity sort of thing. So John kind of fits the bill of an Epsteinine out there with his camel hair and his locusts. But we haven't gotten there yet. Uh, But anyway, so the word of God came to John, who is definitely not Baptist, (laughs) uh, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Repentance is still one of my favorite concepts from Christianity. I love the idea of repentance. It's one of those words like apocalypse or apology that the definition of it doesn't match how we use it, right? Because apocalypse, as you may or may not know, doesn't mean the end of the world. It means unveiling. The synonym is revelation Uh, or apology, which doesn't mean to say you're sorry. It means to make an excuse for But repentance is my favorite. It doesn't mean this sort of a groveling, uh, forgive me, forgive me thing. It means a recognition and a turning. So, 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 So repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Repentance is the only thing that could forgive sins, really. Because the only way to do away with a sin is to turn away from it, to never do it again. To repudiate it. That's it. Uh, so so repentance is a very exciting idea. Still, I think that all of us in our lives, as we go through, there are things as we grow in wisdom, we discover that certain habits and actions of ourselves are not conducive to the person that we want to be and the world that we want to help build. And if we are, so, so when we are confronted with that sort of a realization that we have an action or a habit or a thought that uh, goes against that, we could name that thing sin and turn from it, repent of it, or we could try to fit it into our worldview and, and and just accept it and stay the same. So these sort of spiritual revolutionaries, they want to say, let's not let things stay the same. Things are not good the way they are. There is oppression. There is malice. Let's shake things up, repent of the things that need repenting of, and see what we can build from that. Verse 4. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill be laid low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places will become level ways, and all flesh will see the salvation of the Lord. And remember, since uh, Luke is writing out of this tradition of a focus on the end of oppression, we see this image reinforced again, this leveling, the hills being brought down, the valleys being brought up, uh, the difficult places becoming smooth so that all flesh will see the salvation of God. Whatever that means, verse 7, He said therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, Okay, okay. So, so so, we have this guy, John, who has come in from the wilderness. He is an itinerant preacher, an Essenine. People want to hear him. He's got this baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, which isn't really explained by the text, but I know how I like to take it. So there he is, right? And he's been identified by the writer as the forerunner, the one who comes before the Christ, uh, Elijah, who is mentioned at the book of Malachi, And he says to the people who come, these crowds of people who are excited about this, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to raise from these stones up children for Abraham. Now, that's not a seeker uh, seeker sensitive message. (laughs) Uh, Interesting, interesting. In in Matthew, I'm pretty sure that this section John identifies, or uh, I mean, uh, the narrator says that John says that to the Pharisees, this rival religious group. Um, is that true? Yes, the Pharisees and Sadducees. So so Matthew has them targeting uh, uh, groups. Uh, Luke has them just no, everybody. He calls them all that. He's like, you're all vipers. Even now, the axe is laid to the fruit of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Wow, he's really setting up a situation that's dire. And this is one of the places where Christians might tell you, hey, see, hell's real. John talked about it. If you're, if, you're, if you're not a good tree, you get chopped down and thrown into the fire, right? Right? Even though you're not really a tree and you don't literally get chopped down, but I guess you literally get thrown in the fire. The metaphor doesn't work there. And moreover, what happens when you throw something into a fire? It becomes annihilated it no longer exists there's not like an ever burning tree unless that's what the burning bush is in which case that's terrifying and the crowds asked him what then shall we do because hey good wow nice response from the crowds i don't know if i walked in on a preacher and he was like you friggin snake i think i'd be like "I, i came to the wrong meeting but these guys they're like okay what do we do what do we do they got a sense that things are dire they respect this guy for some reason as a prophet and he answered, well, yeah, we should, too. We actually, uh, the, the narrator is telling us that this is a good guy because of the circumstances of his birth. So, so even though he seems very rough, and, you know, in a, in a different way, he reflects some of the, I mean, the fact that this prophet is a, a wilderness mystic also kind of is in keeping with Luke's reversals. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics? is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Clear and simple, clear and simple. That reminds me of what Jesus says to someone else who asks a similar question. Now, my question for believers is why isn't this taken seriously? This and other passages like it, because we're going to get into some heavy stuff here. We're going to get into some stuff that really, really got me agitated as a believer. Why is it that this we don't take seriously? Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. I, 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 I don't think that and I want to say we, even though I'm not a believer, but, but, but this, this, this statements like this are kind of hardwired into my, like I feel them. So why don't we do that? Or do you? Does anybody? Does, do, believers out there, do you, do, do you make sure that you don't have two tunics unless everybody else does? Do you make sure that, that you share your food with those who don't? Well, I know it's hard to do, right? It's hard to do because we're isolated and cut off. And it's like, well, oh, no, I get that. I mean, that's why I don't do it. right? But also, I don't believe this is real. And that's a big thing. That's a big thing. When I believed this was real, I dropped out of college, married a girl, Moved immediately to Pakistan and like started doing two things i was I was preaching this gospel that I thought would change the world, and I was making sure that any money that I got I didn't have any left right because this was serious this was this was deadly serious later on Jesus is going to say something to the effect of if anybody asks from you, make sure you give something as dead simple as that, and meanwhile I guess I guess my main my main one of my, since, even though I don't believe in this stuff, it still means something to me because it raised me, all right? It, 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 I, it, it will always mean something to me and it will always make me feel in a certain way when I see people who take the name of Christianity, whole organizations who uh, call themselves dedicated and loyal to Christ, who make big things out of issues that Jesus did not speak to, and absolutely ignore some things that seem foundational the very first answer to the question what should we do how should we be saved if you have two tunics give one away sell everything you have give it to the poor it's anytime anybody was very very simple with john or jesus that's what they said first and it is mind-blowing it is amazing the level that churches And congregates are willing to stoop to, to push that away and to make it peripheral. It blows my mind. It is, it it seems like unfaithfulness of the greatest magnitude. What am I saying? What am I saying? Am Am I, am I, am I, am I, am I doing the preacher thing? Am I doing the preacher thing? What, what do I want? What do I want all the Christians of the world to suddenly take vows of poverty and to, you know, open up the churches as homeless shelters and to actually live an axe style life where everybody has thing in common and nobody has any need. And, and, And it's just like this awesome friggin paradise. Is that what I'm saying? I want believers to start doing? Well, that's what we were trying to do. That was one of our projects. Me and my people, what we were, uh, us wild-eyed, young, idealistic missionary people who were reading Luke and Acts in the New Testament, trying to read it with fresh eyes. We still believed it. We still believed it was literally true, that it literally happened. But we wanted to make a a society like this, a a people like this, where it was full renunciation, none of us own anything, except to love each other. We worked at that for a while. We were young and not very wise. So do I want the church to do that? Yeah. Man, that would almost be enough to convince a boy to return. <laughs> <laughs> Did it do?